We have been exploring the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the title of the series of sermons I've been preaching is Meeting Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And we come now to uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, So now listen as we read God's Word. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Many of us who have grown up in the church have become so familiar with Jesus, his teachings, and the stories told about him that, they've, that in a way we've lost our capacity to be shocked by him. We cease to be amazed by him or surprised by him or even challenged by him. So it behooves, there, it behooves us, therefore, to try and imagine as though we were encountering Jesus for the first time. Who is this man? What are we to make of him? And how shall we respond? Wherever Jesus goes, his presence evokes strong reactions. Now, in this passage this morning, we see four different reactions or responses to Jesus. The first response is that of the crowd. And they love him. They, they have loved him from the beginning. They clamor to be in his presence. They line up at the, at, the, at the door, waiting to be physically healed. They expect him to meet their every need. We saw how, uh, how the, the, one day the house was so crowded, the, the door was being blocked, and some friends of a paralytic were desperate to get their friend before Jesus, and so they actually opened up a hole in the roof to lower their friend where the, where the teacher was standing. And now once again... In our passage, we find the crowd again gathered in the house so that he and his disciples were not, are not even able to eat. Jesus was always patient with the crowd. <clears throat> he treated them with compassion. He loved them all. And the crowd loved him as long as he gave them what they wanted. They loved him for what Jesus could do. 
For as long as Jesus healed them physically and was able to turn stones into bread and give them lunch, then they were all for him. He would be their king. But Jesus didn't want to be that kind of king. He wanted to give them so much more, but they were, the crowd was generally oblivious to the deeper dimensions of the kingdom that Jesus had come to proclaim. And of course, there are those today who come to Jesus for what he can do for them. And should Jesus disappoint them anyway, if Jesus should not meet their expectations, they quickly turn away. It's interesting that throughout the Gospel of Mark, the crowd is generally not looked upon favorably. They are often seen more as an obstacle than as an asset to Jesus' mission. And then there is a response of Jesus' family. They think he's out of his mind. I mean, his own mother, his own brothers, they think he's crazy. He's a lunatic. Now, let's think practically about this. In our studies of Mark, we have, we have discovered that Jesus makes some incredible claims for himself. Jesus, for instance, says he is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath? He's claiming to be the author of the commandments, the author of this commandment to observe the Sabbath day, which implies that he himself is the creator of the earth, of the universe, who created the world in six days and then created the Sabbath, the seventh day, for rest. Jesus, the creator of all? And then Jesus has claimed to be able to forgive all sins. He says everybody sins, and every sin any human being does is against him. Now, this is just gospel. This is just uh, the second and third chapters of Mark's gospel. It's just the beginning, and there's more claims to come. So if you grew up with this guy, I can't imagine growing up with Jesus, who was perfect in every way, must have been kind of strange that way, because who could have been like him? But anyway, to grow up with him and know that he was constantly making these claims, not just on, on occasion at some family party, but consistently over a period of time, you would probably think he was crazy too. I can, I can just imagine my brother. I don't, maybe some of you have met one of my brothers, uh, who often when he comes, rarely of course, but he sits here and he heckles me as I, as I preach, um, but I can, I can just imagine if my brother started going around saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he was doing that over and over and over again. I would worry about his mental health. I mean, my family, we would have to do something for him. So I imagine Jesus' mother and brothers, his family... We're worried sick about him, so they came to take him away to spare him and the family further embarrassment. So what about that? Was Jesus a lunatic? Was he crazy? And certainly, those who make the kinds of claims that Jesus said would, have been, would be considered to be a megalomaniac of the first order. And yet, this is the curious thing. Even though Jesus puts himself on the same level as God, you never get the sense that he is arrogant or selfishly proud, full of himself. In other words, alongside the staggering egocentricity of his claims stands the radical non-egocentricity of his life. His radical self-giving, his love for the poor, for the sick, for the suffering, 
for the forgotten and unloved. Jesus claims to be divine, and yet he's extraordinarily humble. That's a strange combination in anybody, and only Jesus could pull it off. Jesus' teachings and his manner of life do not look like the ravings of a lunatic, of a madman. But still there are those today, even, who think that Jesus was crazy, that he was sadly deluded, and that to follow him is a foolish enterprise. Still others think Jesus is a liar and league in the devil, with the devil himself. This is the response to the teachers of the law, of the scribes. He's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So that for them, Jesus was, was just teaching a great big lie. He knew he wasn't, you know, divine. He was just out to grab power. He was just out to, to deceive and manipulate people. He was the son of the father of all lies, in league with Satan himself. But Jesus does not let the teachers of the law get away with that accusation unanswered. And so he says, so Jesus, that is, Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. Again, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan deposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. There's a lot more going on in this passage than meets the eye. Jesus is likening this world to a kingdom dominated by a strong man, a warlord, an evil prince. And then Jesus is pointing out the obvious, basically he's saying this. He's saying, look, if the evil prince attacks a flank of his own army, he's not going to win the battle. His kingdom isn't going to stand. And if I'm in league with a devil, as you say, then why would I cast out demons? I would only be hurting my own cause. That just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's obvious, right? But then Jesus develops the metaphor a little bit more. He's likening the world to a castle. This evil prince, this strong man, in a sense, has a castle and in this castle, there are, there are all sorts of prisoners. And that would be you and me because this world is in bondage. We're in bondage to sin and to disease and to death and to evil forces of every kind. It's how the world has been ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. But then Jesus makes a bold claim. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? The obvious implication is that he himself is the one who has come to bind the strong man, Satan, and to plunder his house in order to set the captives free. He is the one who has come to destroy the evil one and all his works. And those teachers must have been dumbfounded by this. They knew, they knew their scripture they know that, that in the Scripture, God is the divine warrior who comes to save his people from, from their enemies. And now it seems Jesus is all of a sudden now making himself out to be that divine warrior. 
So they were shocked. And they were determined more than ever to get rid of him. Of course, there have always been those who have considered Jesus and his teachings to be fundamentally evil, designed not to bring us freedom, but to enslave us, to bind us up, to prevent us from discovering our true selves and experiencing the good things of life. It's the lie of the serpent of Satan in the garden. Did God say you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree? Don't listen to him. God is trying to keep the good things of life away from you. God has just got you under his thumb. He's trying to bind you up. He wants to tie you up so that he can have his way with you. Don't listen to him. Go your own way. Be your own God. You know better. Jesus, an enemy of freedom, and many people today, you know, think of Jesus as essentially an enemy to, to human freedom. Wherever Jesus goes, he provokes strong reactions. There are some who love Jesus, but they love him more for what he can do for them than for who he is. There are some who think Jesus is a lunatic, crazy. I mean, even his own family thought he was crazy there for a while. And there are still others who think Jesus is a liar and a tool of the devil. But there is a fourth response in this scene in Mark's gospel. It's a response of those who are sitting at Jesus' feet, who listen to, to him, and who then would obey God's will. When it was announced that his family was outside looking for him, Jesus turned to the people around him saying, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those who were seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and my brothers. Now to us, it seems positively rude that Jesus would seem to turn his own back or turn his back on his own family standing outside and essentially adopting a new family on the spot. That would have been uh, unbelievably scandalous to the Jews of that day. I mean, to us it's mildly scandalous, but to them... I mean, dissing his own family? Now today, our families, are many of them are not very tight in the sense that it's not unusual for us to have a son in New York and a daughter in Texas or a, another one in, in Portland. But for Jews in that day, family and extended family lived together. They shared the family business and were therefore extremely close. Relationships were tightly woven and long-lasting. The New Testament scholar Tom Wright reminds us that for Jews, the close family bond was part of the God-given fabric of thinking and living. Loyalty to the family was the local and specific outworking of loyalty to Israel as a people of God. Break the link, and you've undermined a major pillar in the way Jews in the first century think and feel about the world and themselves. So for Jesus to turn away, seemingly turn away from his natural family and adopt a new one would have been just outrageous to those Jews there around him. But turning to those around him, he says, Behold, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, whoever does God's will is in my family. Jesus was actually not trying to be disrespectful to his mother and to his brothers but he was really out to make 
a uh, spiritual point, as he often does. He's still the son of Mary, and he is a brother to uh, James and Joseph and Simon and a brother to his sisters. But this is the point that he was making that day. He was saying, essentially, spiritual ties go deeper than blood ties. Spiritual ties go deeper. Blood relatives are very close, but spiritual relatives can be even closer. And I think it's true, it's true that when, when, for instance, when Christians go to a family reunion, they may share the family name, the people that they're with, they may share the family name, but they may not feel particularly close to them because those other family members don't share that same spiritual passion or that cause that is the center of their lives. And so when a Christian goes to be with non-believing family members, I mean, you can talk about memories, but it, the relationships tend to remain on a very superficial level. I mean, small talk only goes so far. You don't necessarily feel that deep bond of affinity. As brothers and sisters of one another in Christ, as members of Jesus' true family, we are united by a common allegiance to the Lord. And as Christians say that He is the most important part of our life. Our hearts are centered on Him. And together we sit at His feet and listen to Him. We seek to be obedient to the will of God. And as we draw closer to Him, He draws us ever closer together in the spirit of true Christian love. And you can feel those, those ties that bind us. I, I know that Marta has experienced this, but um, you know you can go to different parts of the world and you're with, uh, you're with Christians, and all of a sudden you feel like you're with family. And you feel that the ties that are actually are very strong, even though you may not really know them still, because jointly you know Christ. There's just that natural bond that's wonderful to celebrate. I often think of Jesus, I think of our relationship with Jesus as a triangle, Jesus at the top and you and me at the bottom of the triangle. And as we are drawn to Jesus, as we come to know him more and more, inevitably you and I will be drawn together will become more intimate. And that's what happens in Jesus' true family. Now, Jesus wants everyone to be in his own family. Mark makes it pretty clear that there are both outsiders and insiders. There are outsiders who love him for what he can do for them, and only for that. There are others who think that Jesus was a lunatic. And still others think that Jesus is a liar and in league with the devil. But there are those in the circle around Jesus who know who Jesus is. He is none other than the Lord, the Savior of the world, who has come to bind up the strong man, to plunder his house, and destroy, to destroy his evil works once and for all. He's come to bring in the reign of God. Members of his true family know who he is. And that bond that is created thereby is stronger than anything. Jesus wants everybody in his circle. He wants everyone in his family. 
And if you feel that you are not part of that family, you can actually join it today. Listen to Jesus. You're sitting at his feet right now. Know that you are deeply loved. You are so loved that God was willing to to go to no lengths to bring you into right relationship with him. He sent his own son to die for you. You can join that family through faith, by putting your trust in him, by making, putting Christ at the center of your heart. You know, that heart is kind of like a castle. And sometimes, uh, well, apart from Christ, our castle can be under the domination of the strong man who would bind us. But by faith, we can invite Christ, the Savior, to come in. And as we give him control, as we get our own ego out of the way and as he takes over, we experience richness of life, meaning and purpose and joy and peace. And we know that we have brothers and sisters that were part of Jesus' true family. You can join it by faith, by putting yourself under a new master in whose service is perfect freedom. Blessed be the ties that bind us to one another in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, there's no better place than to be here to sit at your feet and to listen to your word and together to seek your will for our lives. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as we draw closer to you, that, that we would understand that we are part of that family and, and uh, help us to appreciate the bonds that tie us all together. Our spiritual ties stronger even than blood. Thank you, Lord, for uniting us in your love. To you be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.